Mac Observer's Mac Geek App, episode 590, for Sunday, January 31st, 2016. Uh, Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, the show where you send in questions, tips, and cool stuff found. Our goal is for all of us to learn at least two new things each and every time we get together. Sponsors for this episode include iMazing at iMazing.com, where coupon code MGG saves you 20%. We'll talk about iMazing shortly here. There's some cool stuff they got going on here in Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. Here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. And how goes it today, Mr. John F. Braun? Yeah. 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 It's all right. All right, good. Hey, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to totally jump the agenda here because uh, we got a bunch of quick tips to do. And, uh, and, but first, I want to play a question because, uh, because I, you know, that's, um, that's important. So, uh, so here we go. Hey, John and Dave, this is Cyrus in Round Rock, Texas. Hey, I just want to point out uh, some audio issues I've noticed on your podcast starting, I guess, late December uh, up through the first couple of podcasts in January. John's voice has this white noise sound sort of uh, during and after when he speaks. So I don't know if it's a microphone issue or a, a transmission, a Skype issue, or however you guys communicate, but uh, I thought you might want to know. Thanks, Cyrus. Yeah, you know, the funny thing is we talked about this in pre-show last week and, uh, you know, did some tuning and and found we certainly were aware of the noise. Uh, and I was tuning it out with uh, with like parametric EQ, which lets you sort of narrow down on a band and, and slide around until you find it. And we sort of got rid of it, but it was sort of all over the place. And uh, and then I was recording an episode of my small business show podcast with Shannon Jean earlier this week. And I heard that from him, too. And I'm like, oh, man going on and i had been using different versions of skype back and forth and we use audio hijack pro uh to record the show and in and we'd been doing a lot of changing and i've been experimenting with some stuff in fact this show is being recorded in a way that i can't wait until i'm allowed to tell you about because there's some very cool stuff going on uh software wise today uh john you got your backup recording going right yes sir okay good (laughs) um but uh, any time in uh, Audio Hijack, when you change your application input, um, it reverts to the defaults for that application. And the defaults for Skype are for it to capture both the incoming and outgoing audio. So capturing my audio as well as John's. The way we have it set up, I don't need that and I don't want my audio on, on that channel. I just want John's audio uh on that channel so we can kind of keep things separate and and mix it the way we want to mix it skype also has this thing called comfort noise where uh, they found that people uh would get would think that the call ended uh when they were talking because they didn't hear any noise on the other end and it's because we got used to this with telephones right you'd hear some sort of like line noise and what was happening i guess is the um because it was capturing both sides of it the comfort noise was actually being generated from my side and then being sent out 
uh, over the wire. And, and so it was capturing that. And so as soon as I realized it, I turned it off. And of course, I'm checking now to make sure that uh, the Skype channel has comfort noise turned off. And uh, it does, or not comfort noise. It, uh, I don't think you can turn that off in that sense. But, uh, but I, I'm only recording John. And so hopefully today, we've got that problem licked. So that's, that's where I wanted to start today. Sound good to you, John? Uh, it always sounds good to me. Well, right. That's actually, but it, but it didn't sound good to others. No, but I'm not hearing as much of that kind of white noise buffer on either end. The reason you weren't hearing white noise the entire time folks is because we also use something. Um, a noise gate is the simplest way to explain it, but it's really an expander, which is sort of a gate with a soft start and stop. Um, and, and so you, you know, once John stopped talking, it would fall below the gate and, the expander and then you wouldn't hear the threshold anyway on to some quick tips so but please do i appreciate you doing that cyrus and anybody else as always keep us uh keep us posted here and and we'll tell you what we're doing because we're we're geeks and it's how it goes kevin had a great tip he said here's something i stumbled upon which i've not heard anyone mention previously with any iOS device that has an A9 processor, which I believe limits us to only the iPhone 6S and 6S Plus at the moment. He says you can dictate without an internet connection. The accuracy appears to be just as good or bad as anything before. Prior to the A9, an internet connection has always been necessary to dictate. I'm curious as to why Apple hasn't seen fit to mention this, at least not anywhere I've noticed. And Kevin's right. Siri doesn't work without an internet connection, but dictation does on the 6S and 6S Plus. And that's a handy thing to not have to rely on, on, that, uh, on that connection to, to help with, with, the, uh, with the dictation. Of course, the, you know, I think the Samsung phones have had this for a while, but, uh, but that's all right. You know, that's how it goes. It's pretty cool. Did you try this, John? You have a 6S, right? Yes. Um, now I don't, Actually, you know, I don't use the uh, speech interface a lot. You know, I have found it really handy for like quick emails or Facebook posts or whatever. It's just so much easier to dictate than to try and tap it out with my thumbs. And then I can easily go back and, and edit and correct and, and all of that. But dictation makes, makes life a lot easier in that sense. So it's good. You know, you have to say uh, it's good, period. I like this comma, but, you know, comma. I don't like that. You got to talk that way, uh, but, th- but you get used to it and it's totally fine. Period. <laughs> Exclamation point. All right. Danny says, I don't think I'll teach you something here, but just in case my life is full of joy since I learned how to reduce the time it takes to see the dock popping to existence. When the cursor hit the edge of the screen, I want it as fast as possible. And he gives some terminal lines. We'll, we'll put a link to, I think actually Brian wrote an article about this. Um, but uh, it's defaults, right? Com.apple.doc. And then there is an auto hide dash time dash modifier. And you set it to an integer of zero. And then you kill the doc. And you can set zero to any number. And there you go. It, uh, it, it just pops right up. There's no delay or anything like that. We like it. It's good stuff. Did you try that one, John? Or don't you do the... Uh, I always have the dock visible with, with hundreds. Some, not hundreds, but uh, yeah, you would, you would, you would shudder in, in fear at how many icons I have in my dock. I have actually a ton of icons on my dock. I use the, um, 
I use the dock to, um, I hide, I, I hide the dock on my laptop because I, you know, I, I like the screen real estate. So, uh, so that's, that's where I hide things and or auto hide things and it works out well, you know, I don't know. It's good stuff. I like these little, uh, these little quick tips, folks. These are good things. Thank you. Actually, that one appeared on Mac observer as well. After we, after we got the email, Jim writes, uh, we have a music system downstairs and a separate system upstairs. Occasionally I want to treat them as a single all house system with the same music playing in sync upstairs and down. If you try to set this up using the airplay icon showing on the top of your screen in the menu bar, you will find it's not possible to make this work, use the AirPlay icon at the top bar of the iTunes window. Drove me crazy until I figured it out. And you're absolutely right, Jim. The AirPlay icon at the top will not do uh, that granular level of, of multiple speakers and, and all that stuff. But the, um, uh, the, the, you know, the inside iTunes one is more flexible, and that's a good thing. Pretty good, right, John? Awesome. Awesome. All right. Moving on. To Chris, uh, I gotta find it here. Did we talk about Chris already? I feel like we did, but I don't think we did. Uh, on one of your recent episodes, Arena reminded me of the command tab to switch to applications with Q to quit. As a standard, many people uh, I think are comfortable using. However, I stumbled upon this additional one a while ago, and I use it regularly. Switching between windows within the same application can be achieved with command and the button above tab, which is the back quote. I really feel like we did this one and I must just not have crossed it off, but, uh, but there you go. It works. It's all good. Do you remember talking about this, John, or am I making it up? No, though it's included in what's coming. So maybe that's. Oh, uh, okay. I, I, for some reason I remember reading this aloud, but maybe I read it to somebody else. Yeah. So yeah, that's how you're having Bouchard day or deja vu. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, command and the, 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 the back tick, uh, backward single quote will cycle through the windows of only the existing application, which is cool. Maybe I talked about it on, uh, on TMO's daily observations, but doing a lot of podcasts lately. That's good. It's good. All right, John, you got a, uh, you got an article that you're going to, you're going to talk about here with some quick tips. Yeah, so I got it through like three levels of indirection here. So um, someone had posted, uh, someone in my feed, um, I can't recall who, my apologies, but someone in my feed posted a link to an article, which actually linked to a, I think, a Fox News article, which in turn was actually linking to this article. So, you know, they they sure they, they uh, identified the source, which is good. You know, they didn't copy and paste it. They basically just put it under their banner and said, oh, and by the way, here's, here's you know, where we got this. And, and that's what you're supposed to do. You know, always attribute your sources, right? Sure. It's just the ethical thing to do. Um, but it's from a BGR Tech, which I haven't seen very often, but it looks like a dandy site. Boy, Genius Report. They've actually been around for a while. Oh, yeah. that's what that stands for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. Because actually, I think the handle of one of the guys is, uh, yeah, is Boy Genius. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it is uh, 25 hidden iPhone features that are really, truly hidden. And at first, I was skeptical, as, as we all should be. But when I looked through it, I'm like, you know what? I don't know about a lot of these. Or I knew about, you know, some of these and have talked about them. But this is a nice compilation of, 
and we'll link to the article, but it tells you how to do a redial, how to clear your caches, uh, making touch ID work faster, spotlight conversion, spotlight math, deleting numbers in the calculator, which you just mentioned, right? Uh, clearing RAM, burst mode, remote shutter, uh, turning the flashlight off, and I won't read all of them. But uh, quite a few of these I did not know about. So uh, tips for us all to share and make our life better. Yeah, I'm, I'm just looking here. In the Notes app, all of the drawing tools are, uh, and the eraser are pressure sensitive. So 3D Touch actually works with those on the, on the successes. I had no idea until just now. Huh. Very, very good. One of my favorites that I've sort of become re-enamored with, and it's listed here, is to clear your RAM to make your phone run faster. Um, this can help with like when spotlight results don't appear right away and that sort of thing. You hold down the power button until it says slide to power off and then let go of the power button and then hold down the home button until you get back to the uh, springboard, the home screen. And that's it. So you hold down one until things change and then you let go of that. And then you hold down the other until things change. And then that clears things out. And it actually, I, I find it solves some of those problems. So it's good stuff. Awesome. Nice. Fine, man. I like that one. It's good. You want to take us to, uh, you want to take us to Lauren, John? I do want to take us to Lauren All because, right. um, as you may recall in the last episode, uh, we had an, we had a question about how to restore um, prior purchases that you've made in the app store. And uh, I had um, uh, erroneously, though I, I won't totally blame myself, had assumed that uh, because there was a little cloud next to some things in the app store that it was coming from iCloud. Well, it was coming from the cloud, not iCloud, but a cloud. I guess the app store cloud, if you will. So then I decided to, uh, you know, to do penance here and actually uh, uh, find... <laughs> A source, an authoritative source of information on how you can do this uh, for not only the App Store, but other stores. And thank you to our friends at Apple because they have a support article titled Download Your Past Purchases. And it not only tells you how to do it for the App Store, but I think it tells you, uh, let me, uh, I'll get it up. But, but it tells you for pretty much any store where you purchase content, if it's possible for you to download it or re-download it. Any Let's Apple. They stay here. Apple. I'm sorry. Run store. Obviously, because it's so, an Apple support article. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So here, so, and, uh, you know, the headline and then, you know, we'll let you uh, explore it if you like. Uh, but, but it will tell you how to find your past purchases in the iTunes store, the App Store, the iBook store, and the Mac App Store on your nice. iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, Mac PC, or Apple TV. So it covers all the stores for all the devices you may have from Apple. So, um, Thanks, guys. Yeah, good stuff. I love the. I, uh, I I just kind of stumbled across it when I you know when we solved the last one. I just kind of you know fumbled around in the store and I was like, oh, look at that. There's there's you know a way for me to get an app that I don't have installed. Yeah, and that's also not available for new purchases. That's that was the real trick. That's that you know that was one of my favorite questions last week. Or I mean, one of my favorite questions of all time, and it happened last week because. We both learned something from it, and hopefully all of our listeners learned something too, but uh, I, lo I love that stuff. That's, you know, that is the goal. So, it's good. All right. Uh, one last, uh, it's not a quick tip as much as it is a, uh, a tip from related to show 589, which is, of course, the last show that we did from Adam. He says, I was listening to the episode and I wanted to add 
to the remote support thread. If you need to observe someone else's iPhone or iPad screen and they have a Mac they can plug into via USB, you can have them plug in and then open QuickTime Player, start a new video recording, and change the input to the iOS device by using the small V-shaped pull-down next to the record button. That will display the iOS screen on their Mac screen, and then you can use TeamViewer or whatever your preferred method of remote controlling their Mac is to observe their iPhone screen in close to real time. You still can't control the iPhone screen from here, but you can definitely observe it and, uh, and you know, instruct them through. So that's a, that's a brilliant remote uh, support solution for iOS. It's probably the best I've heard of yet. So, and you know, uh, well, and maybe I can extend it. So uh, what was percolating, that was percolating in my mind, though I didn't mention it explicitly. Sure. I'm, I'm telling the truth here. Yeah, I, but I believe here, it. Here was my thought is if you could get, so the thing is you have to directly plug in. So you have to plug the iDevice into the Mac Correct. Uh, via USB in order for you to be able to view its contents in, uh, in QuickTime. Um, and I think technically this may be possible, but if you could somehow set up a virtual USB port to someone, and I know this is possible in some cases. For example, Dave, the, um, see what you're saying. Yeah. the TP-Link that I have, and right now I, uh, I don't think they fixed it, but the TP-Link router that I have also has a printer sharing feature. And the way that they do it is they actually install a kernel extension that sets up a virtual USB port to the, um, to the device. So it's certainly possible. Well, unfortunately what happened is that it wasn't signed. So this kernel extension that does that breaks under El Capitan and they haven't gotten around to, uh, to fixing. Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. So I actually moved from doing that to sharing it from, uh, so I plug it. Uh, so I rather. Uh, so I plug it into my Mac now and share it that way. Make the my Mac Mini act as a print server, which sure. is a perfectly valid way of of doing it. Of course, not as not as nice, I think, because the machine has to be on. Or, well, well, no, I think what happens is, yeah, if I'm if I'm invoking that and it's sleeping, I think it'll actually wake it up. It'll say, hey, you know, somebody wants to use the printer, dude. Whereas with the TP link, of course, it's always on. So you know, that was a more convenient way to share right share printer. Right, and right. a disc. That's another feature of it. Kind of like most Apple products. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or Apple routing products. Right. So, but yeah, if you could get a virtual USB driver and somehow virtually connect to the person's iDevice, that, that I think would be uh, pretty spiffy. I'll have to poke around. You know, I bet you there's something out there you could cobble together that would let you do that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, but yeah, I mean, I guess it would just be yeah, USB over IP. I mean, is what that what that comes down to huh interesting stuff i like it all right um we've got uh we've got a question actually from show 589 so while we're on the 589 bandwagon we will go to rob uh he says in uh, episode 589 from about uh one the one hour five minute mark there were two listener questions that led to the discussion of moving backups from one drive to another one involving Time Machine with James and the other involving a clone from Michael. There's another option that I thought worthwhile to mention. Apple's disk utility has a restore function. You can replicate the content of one drive to another. Select the source drive as the one that contains the current backup and select the destination as the drive you want to back up. You want the backup to end on. Click restore 
and leave it to run for however many hours it takes. As long as the destination drive has the correct partition type, GUID partition map, it will work. The destination drive will end up formatted correctly with the same name as the source drive. I've used this many times for moving carbon copy cloner backups to a larger drive. It's great because it retains the backup history, including the archive and the safety net. Uh, And I've also used it for migrating a time machine backup to a larger drive. And Rob, you're absolutely right. This restore function, it's, it's really simple. And because of that, really powerful. It's perfect for doing a basically 100% copy of the data in a partition without needing to maintain the size, right? A lot of times you can, you know, there were, there, I guess maybe not so much today, but there were always these, you know, partition clone utilities, but you always had to have the same size. Whereas Apple's restore thing doesn't. In fact, you can take your hard drive and clone it to a disk image and then restore it back from a disk image to another hard drive uh, or even the same hard drive. And it works great. So, yeah. And it's not doing a, you know, bit by bit or sector by sector thing. It's, it's doing just files. Right. And so the benefit, part of the benefit is you, if you're using a spindle drive, you wind up defragmenting the drive sort of by default in the process because you're, you're just recopying all this stuff onto there, or at least that's been my experience with it. So yeah, the, um, the restore drive thing, I remember having a hard drive going south on me once and, uh, and I used the restore drive thing. I, you know, the, I got the machine to boot and it was like, all right, I'm not going to do anything else. I'm certainly not going to try and reboot it. Uh, the drive is up, but it's live. I need to copy it. This is how you do it. And you can just, you can clone a live, you can clone your boot drive, anything like this. So good stuff. Thank you, Rob. Did they, I'm just scratching my head over this because you know how they kind of ruined disutility and uh, El Capitan. I'm just looking here to, it's not obvious to me where the part is to create the image. They certainly have in the images menu, scan image for, okay, maybe that's what, uh, okay. Well, you know, you create a new, a new image by highlighting your partition in disk utility and then go to the file menu and say new New image. Image okay. from, yep, exactly. Image from folder? All right. You can do a disk image from the... Uh, All right, it says blank image. Well, no, not blank disk image. You'd, you'd highlight, the, highlight the disk and say, I want to do a disk image from that disk, and then, and then you can do that. Right, what I'm saying is that I don't know if... I, I think they, they shuffle things around here as far as how you... Oh, right, because th- this machine is, that I'm on is not, um, it's not El Capitan. Let me pull up... Uh, let me use remote access and wake up the iMac in my office while I vamp here. Oh, come on. You gotta wake up. It's all good. Please. There we are. Okay. So if I wake up the iMac in the office and... It's not happy because it's been asleep for a couple of days and it needs to think a little bit. And unfortunately, that means I have to vamp for a little bit. This is weird. All right. It doesn't usually take this long to, to, to screen share. But, uh, but you're saying you don't see that option? You can't make a disk image from a, from a drive anymore? All right. Well, there, there's two parts here. So I'm looking on, on one machine here. And so, so there's the drive itself. And then there's, you know, underneath it, the uh, partition. Yeah. And if I highlight it and then I go to file, I mean, there is a new image and it says, yeah, you know what? I think they screwed something up here. 
Because if I go to file, new image, I see blank image, dot, 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 image from folder, dot, 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 and then image from Macintosh SSD. Yeah. Here's the only problem. That's grayed out. <laughs> um, probably because it's your boot disk. You can't create an image from the boot disk. Uh, okay. All right. So the option's still there. All yeah. Right. But the file you, menu is, is where you create it. And then if like you're I doing it with it. an image, yeah, but you can, the, the restore tab is different. You can drag the, um, the, the boot disc into the, you know, into the restore tab as the source. So you, but you have to clone it to another disc. You can't clone the boot one to a, uh, an image. At least that's, that's what I'm seeing here on both El Capitan and Yosemite. So there you go. All right, John, we've got, uh, we've got a, are we good on that one? Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, we've got a slew of questions to go through today. And I think we've got enough time to probably get through most of them. But first I want to talk about our first sponsor. How's that sound to you, John? Fantastic. All right. Our first sponsor for today is iMazing at iMazing.com, where I'll tell you right now, coupon code MGG saves you 20%. So go check this out. iMazing is the tool that you want instead of iTunes to manage all the data that you have on your iPhone and other iOS devices. It can back up your phone. It can pull songs off of your phone. It can do all that stuff. But then once you have those backups, things get really, really interesting. You can dig in and actually change things inside of your iOS backups. For example, in the current version of iMazing, they now allow tinkerers to fully edit backups. Nothing is out of bounds. This enables what they call data injection of system data. For example, you can extract your text messages from one backup and inject them into another backup, and then you restore the modified backup to your phone. This allows transferring of only your text messages from one device to another without having to wipe the device at all. And that's the interesting part. You can restore backups from iMazing without wiping your phone to begin with. That means all the caches and everything else that you have on your phone remain intact. This is very, very cool stuff. iMazing 1.5 is actually coming out next week, and that includes even more backup editing potential. You can add or remove apps, including their state, to a backup, so you can restore selectively. This is very, very cool. Again, you don't have to wipe out your device before you restore, so you can restore selected stuff. Very flexible. you got to check out iMazing. Go to iMazing.com, download it. You can mess with it, play with it, do whatever you want. And then when you're ready to buy, coupon code MGG saves you 20%. Our thanks to iMazing for sponsoring this episode. And with that, John, it's time to talk to John. Because, you know, why not, right? Uh, John, listener John, has some questions for us here. And you'd think I'd have those in front of me. Why can't I find this? I would think you would. I mean, it's right there in, in Evernote. Is it right there? Oh, I see it now. Okay. I don't know. All right. Uh, listener John writes, uh, Dear Dave, hi to the other guys, but Dave, I know you do this, so I ask. I have four 
uh, Apple TV third generation and a Synology DS1815 plus NAS. I have Plex running on it. So for my single Apple TV uh, 4G and my iPad, my fourth gen Apple TV and my iPads. I've read several articles that say Plex will run with Apple TV 3, but all start on a Mac with Plex as the driver, not on the NAS. What do I need to do to get it to run on my Plex server? What do I need to do? Asks strangely. Sorry. What do I need to do to get my Apple TV 3 to point to my Plex server on my Synology? Okay. Um, Really, without more jumping through hoops than you want to do plex will not talk directly to your apple tv3 yeah there there have been some ways to get it to like you know doing some dns spoofing and and having it act as the trailers app and all of that and if you want to go through that's fine we'll find a link and we'll put it in the show notes but by and large plex does not talk directly to the apple tv3 you can use your mac or your ios device though to play a plex movie and then airplay it to your Apple TV three. It's not ideal, but it works. Okay. How, Cause normally you need a Plex client client. That's exactly right. Yeah. And Apple TV three, of course has no provision for installing software. So correct. You really can't though, as you pointed out, people have, uh, uh, cleverly, uh, engineered ways to trick it to trick it. Yeah. And it works, but here's the thing, uh, you know, um, you have a Synology, right? And Synology's own video station will play direct from the Synology to Apple TV three and to Apple TV four uh, over its AirPlay connection. And we'll put a link in the in the show notes that sort of explains this process. It's a it, 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 the link I've got is a little over overly explanative, um, but that's not a bad thing, right? It gets you there. One thing I will say. What you do is you, and and here's the thing, the Apple TV three also doesn't have a client for pointing to the Synology. So you have to start the movie from somewhere else and you can do it from your Mac in a web browser, or you can do it on your iOS device. But here's the difference. You're not pointing, you're not airplaying it from your iPhone. You're using your iPhone as the remote control to tell your Synology to airplay directly. And, and that's where this article is really helpful because there is an icon that you click and say, play the movie over there. And you could even do this. Like I could, you know, I could be in, in California and tell my Apple TV or my, sorry, my Synology at home to play to my Apple TV at home. And it would do that. Right. That that's, that's how this works. And it works really, really well. I'm not sure uh, how, how they're doing it. I have some ideas. I think Erica Sadoon sort of re-engineered the whole airplay thing. And I, I think they're taking advantage of that and they're fine with it. They, you know, they, they've been doing this for a long time. It works really well because what you get to do is pull out your iPhone while you're sitting on the couch, use your iPhone, search around. It's really easy to search in the app. You find the movie you want, you say, play it on the TV. And then you put your iPhone down. Your iPhone can even leave the house. It's no longer involved in the process. You can use your Apple TV's remote to play and pause and all of that stuff. We now have an Apple TV four in the living room. And so we have the Plex app on it and on our, you know, our, our media server, which is a Synology, it points Plex and, and our Synology libraries kind of point to the same place. It's one library. In fact, they just, the apps point to the same place, the server apps. So we can play the same movie from either place. We've used Plex 
We occasionally still use Plex, but it's still easier to search with my iPhone and play them and find the movie that way and just kick it off from there. So even with the ability to launch the app on the Apple TV, um, you know, it's nice to have it all in one place. So you don't need your iPhone there, but how far away from you is your iPhone at any given point in time? This way is actually easier. Um, and we, we really like it. So again, I'll put that link in the show notes and, uh, and there you go. So yeah, Alex in the chat room at MacGeekGab.com slash stream is asking, uh, Dave, are you talking about pushing to the Apple TV three from an iPhone? And no, I'm not. I'm talking about using the iPhone as a remote control for the Synology and the Synology pushes directly to the Apple TV three. So just to restate that, hopefully that's clear. It's a little, I, I know it's, it's convoluted, but, uh, but yes, it does use airplay. It's pretty cool. In fact, I think I like it. It's good. What do you think, John? I think you're right. Am I? Okay, good. It works. The whole family likes it. It, it kind of passes the family test. Everybody, you know, is comfortable using it and it just, it works. It's, um, it's really the best way to, to watch movies from a digital media library. I think, I think. All right. Let's see if we can find, uh, if we can find Mark in here. Mark writes a few weeks ago, John helped me with an issue I was having with my MacBook pro booting up into the utilities. Uh, after reinstalling the OS, that hasn't happened since. Today, when I turned on my MacBook, the hard drive spun, then it shut off. I plugged the power cord in and turned it on. The battery immediately showed that it had a 22% charge. Any guesses as to what may be happening? I'm leaning toward the power supply. It's a mid-2009 MacBook Pro. He says this isn't to, the first time it's happened. I Go just ahead. want to clarify because I, I don't think we covered his last issue we ran out of time which we typically do sure because we just have so much to talk about but his machine so it wasn't utilities that he was booting into as far as i could tell because he said you know i'm booting my machine and i see these four choices he was somehow booting into recovery which worried me because as far as i know unless you explicitly tell your machine i believe it's uh, holding down command r i think command r will boot you into recovery. Maybe just R. I might have the, the command thing might be a holdover from my, I don't know, from some or option R. It's day. one of those, but it's something with R. But as far as I know, unless you explicitly hold down certain keys, you don't boot into recovery. So his machine was booting in recovery and he was like, you think reinstalling the OS would help? And I'm like, couldn't hurt. So I don't know if there was some sort of damage that was detected and it booted into recovery. I personally have never seen a machine boot into recovery unless I told it to do so. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. It shouldn't automatically boot into recovery. And it is command in R, according to uh, an Apple support article to which we'll link. Yeah. And actually, uh, from the chat room, well, actually, this is one of my suspicions here. So Alex, in our chat room, which you can find at com slash stream. Hi, guys. Um, he says, uh, in all seriousness, um, sticky keys. I'm like, well, you could have a bad keyboard. I mean, if uh, <laughs> both the command key and the R key sticking, though, I don't know. Well, I mean, it's I, possible. I think that's highly, highly unlikely. Yes. No. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or could it, you know, the cat, I don't know, or whatever, you know, critters you have around could have been walking on your keyboard as you started the machine up and happened to be holding those two down. I don't know. 
there's weird things going on with this computer. I think that's it's safe to say. So to answer this question, you know, Mark says he's leaning toward it being the power supply. The power, that's sort of a generic term, right? The, The power supply, technically speaking, is the is external to the Mac, right? I mean, there's this thing that takes power from the wall and transforms it into DC power that then it sends to your MagSafe connector, right? Uh, there is a power management chip, of course, inside the computer, and there's a, a, um, a mechanism for charging the battery and all of that. So there's power-related stuff sort of everywhere in the chain. Uh, you're p- plugging in power seem to solve this problem for you so given everything that we know about this machine really the first thing that i would suggest is trying an smc reset right that which is you know kind of the if it sounds like hardware but maybe isn't hardware then uh reset the smc and and that might alleviate it and we'll put a link in the show notes it's different for every computer but it's it's worth doing it, it resets a lot of things including the, you know, the power management controller in the computer. So that, that alone could solve potentially all of your issues. Uh, certainly this one. However, it's also possible that you have a bad cell in your battery and 20% is the lowest it'll go. We've seen this before. It doesn't happen often, but it does happen where the battery knows, okay, I've got, you know, and I'm just going to say for the sake of argument, five cells, Right. And uh, it just so happens that the, the the last one in the chain is has gone bad. Uh, something's wrong with it. It won't put out any power or won't put out much power. Right. So you go to turn on your computer. Your computer looks at the battery and says, yep, I've got, uh, like you said, you know, 20 percent charge. We're good to go or a little more, a little less than 20 percent. Let's go. It spins up the hard drive. Suddenly the battery's not putting out enough you know, juice consistently and the computer says, yeah, uh, we're going down and it, and that's it. Right. And spinning up the hard drive is one of those things, right? It, it needs some extra juice and that might be enough to say, well, we're not getting, you know, the, the power flow that we need. Down we go. Plugging in your charging pack, of course says, yep. Okay, great. Let's go. And of course it starts charging the battery during that process. And now you're at 22% by the time you get up and running. I've seen this happen before, uh, so and, and I've had it happen to me. So it could be an issue with your battery. The, the, the way to test it would be to let your battery run all the way down to zero and see if it still runs when it's below 20%. Uh, if it doesn't, then that would pretty much confirm that you've got that kind of a problem. Again, resetting the SMC, though, can alleviate that type of a problem, too. So that's definitely the first place to start. That's what I got on this one, John. Yeah, because I mean, you shouldn't have to... It sounds like what you're suggesting is a calibration operation. No, I'm, I'm no. suggesting a test. If, if, if oh, you know, right, the, right. The, the speculation is that the, you know, the battery does not put out the right amount of power below the 20% mark for whatever reason, bad cells, you know, you know et cetera. Mm-hmm. So let's let it, you know, start it up, get it up and running and then unplug it and let it, run down and see will it get to you know does it run all the way down to one percent or zero percent or does it just shut off and die surprisingly sometime around the 20 percent mark that that's that's what i'm looking at okay all right because i had a battery 
that I actually did have to do what I would consider a calibration operation. Yeah. It was, uh, it was something in a goodie bag that I got. And the funny thing is the first time I used it, it ran down like really quickly. So it has four, four LEDs on it that you would assume would, you know, progress or degress yeah, in sure. a linear manner. And they didn't the first time I used it. And then actually went the first time I charged it, it went from one light to three lights to four lights. And I'm like, well, that's, that's mm. kind of weird. Yeah. But no, I did a full charge and then a full rundown on it. And then apparently it fixed something. And I think it's self calibrated or whatever, because then it, then it was fine. But out of the box, it was, uh, or out of the goodie bag. Um, it, it wasn't making sense. <laughs> yeah, it happens. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the calibration thing I meant. Uh, I mentioned you, uh, Apple claims you no longer, it, it, it's been a while since you had to do that with Apple batteries. Uh, before they would suggest that you run it all the way up and all the way down and all the way up. Um, right. I, I don't think they, they suggest that anymore. I mean, you could certainly do it. Um, yeah, but there's... Hurt, I don't there's, think it hurts anything. Yeah, other than adding cycle counts to your battery right yeah <laughs> but it doesn't help anything yeah that's right okay uh joe actually has two good questions he says hi guys <clears throat> i would seek suggestions from you on number one small desktop speakers number two an iphone app for podcasts all right so for number one my favorite uh small desktop speakers and and this is the pair that's been holding court uh, at my desk down in my office for a number of years now are the audio engine a2s uh they are relatively small uh but man they sound so good now you can't get the a2s anymore uh these are self-powered speakers right so you you plug a you go from your headphone jack on your mac out to the speakers and then the speakers plug into power as well and they power themselves and they just sound so good uh but you can't get the a2s anymore you can however get the a2 plus and the difference between the a2 and the a2 plus is that the a2 plus adds a usb port on it which means it has its own dac its own digital to analog converter and that means that you're not using your mac's somewhat noisier DAC. So you get this high quality DAC. You plug the speakers in USB to your Mac. You still power them because they've got amplifiers in them and USB isn't enough to, to power those amplifiers. And, uh, and you get even better sound. <clears throat> Pardon me. I guess this cold is still with me here, guys. Um, so, it, you know, that, that's, that's my, my quick recommendation for, for speakers. Um, I, I test a lot of stuff and the A2s have have maintained their spot at my desk for a while. And of course in the studio, I've got a fives and you can't get the a fives anymore. You have to get the a five pluses and, um, and all of that stuff. But, uh, I don't think you can get the a fives, but, um, yeah, they, the audio engine makes good speakers. So, and you know, I'm picky about this stuff. So it's good. That's what I got on that. John you use speakers at your desk or do you just use your internal computer speakers? Uh, on my desk, which is here, which is the Mac Mini, which is my podcasting machine, I use uh, headphones exclusively. Okay. Over over the ear, if you will. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm either on this machine. I'm either doing podcasting or uh, gaming. Um. Though I do have the A5s. Yeah, as you pointed out correctly. Yeah, the A5s. I mean, uh, yeah. So I have a pair of those downstairs, and then have a pair of. Uh, 
speakers connected to my uh, Apple TV or actually my uh, and my entertainment center are actually uh, were somewhat inexpensive and you I guess you can no longer get them unless you're near a Radio Shack but they were Radio Shack's uh, house brand oh yeah yeah and they actually weren't bad they were 100 watt speakers because I, I blew up my prior set of speakers that well as I found out couldn't handle 100 watts <laughs> sure <laughs> all of a sudden they started sounding funny I'm like whoops so uh, yeah and they were they were the, yeah, Avo, I, I forget. It was their, whatever, Radio Shack house brand. And they're, sure. They're not bad. Yeah, yeah. Not great. You know, you, you'd probably uh, not, you probably have an opinion about them. Uh, I have an opinion about them. everything. <laughs> well, even when you listen to the, uh, you know, the um, Heos that I have. Yeah. Uh, you, you had some opinions about the projection, I guess. Their projection is not ideal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. I think you're just too tall. You're too tall for that speaker. <laughs> yeah, well, that could be. It's true. I put my speakers up higher um, in the house here. So, and the uh, the A twos are interesting. You can get a little uh, little feet for them that angle them up so that they're aimed from your desk at your head. Uh, if you want to do that too, which is smart. Hmm. I do want to point out. <clears throat> pardon me. I want to point out one thing. Uh, the while the the diff one of the differences between the audio engine two the a twos and the a two plus is that it added the USB input the the a going from the a five to the a five plus did not add that input so they are powered or they are uh, their sound comes from an analog input source uh, so just so you know they do audio engine does now have the the HD six speakers which have uh, the uh, the you know, their USB input, I believe. Right. Tech specs. Inputs. Uh, Bluetooth. Not USB. I thought it had a uh, USB input. No, I guess not. I haven't checked that one out yet. So that, uh, just learning about that. I actually listened to them at CES, but haven't uh, haven't played with them on my own. So they've got Bluetooth input on them, but not USB. So anyway, for small speakers, you can't, you're not going to go wrong with the A2 pluses. I love them. As for podcast apps, um, of course, if you're going to listen to this show, the Mac Geek Gab app is free and allows you to do some very special things that are targeted at just this show. Um, you can send feedback in and, and uh, you can listen to the live stream from inside the app. You can leave bookmarks and all of this great stuff. So, Certainly for this show, it's worth having the Mac Geek Cab app. I highly encourage it. However, it's not the only podcast you listen to. So my favorite is Downcast. Uh, works really, really well uh, to manage everything to do with your podcasts. Does background downloads. You can have settings for individual shows. Uh, you can have global settings. It really, it's, it's my favorite. And I've, I've checked out lots of them and you know, I like, I like a lot of the things that, um, that Marco Arment did with his overcast app. That's actually a, another great one. They've, he's got a, uh, he wrote his own routine to speed up a show, uh, without making it sound too jittery. And it's actually, it works really, really well. But in terms of the UI, I just prefer downcast managing a, a lot of shows so we'll put uh, we'll put links to all those in the in the notes what do you use for podcast john you don't listen to podcasts do you um rarely when i do i i use uh what apple offers 
that uh, meets meets my needs. iTunes, pretty much. iTunes or you know whatever's on the on the iOS device. That's how I roll. Yeah, yeah. You know, Apple's app isn't terrible. Um, the the podcast app it's gotten better and better over the years. In fact, I I um, I, it's you know, it's not bad. Yeah, yeah. iTunes, on the other hand, uh, it could use some fixing. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I had this conversation with um, somebody recently. I, I, um, my, I, I am not someone who believes that on the Mac, iTunes should be chopped up into you know six different apps or whatever. I, I think it makes sense to have a single media player app on the Mac that manages all this, and I think it makes sense to have the store inside that app because you're going to go and you're going to buy a movie or you're going to buy a song. And then you just want to play it right away and you don't want to have to jump apps like you do in on your phone, but your phone, this, this is my, my feeling on this. However, there is one thing that needs to be broken out of iTunes immediately post haste. And that is syncing. You know, it, it syncing becomes this almost modal process where you can't do anything. You can't interact with iTunes in a meaningful way while you've got this sync happening. And if they broke that out and you know, Hey, call it iSync again. I don't care. I think that that's what iTunes needs to fix. Or I think what you're saying or what, what I'm hearing, even though you said syncing is the device management aspect. That's a better way of putting it. I agree with that. Yeah. Because right now iTunes is well, except for something like amazing, but uh, iTunes is the official way from Apple to interact with your iOS devices. It's uh, true both for syncing and, you know, backups and, and some other operations. Um, yeah. Yeah. That part. No, you're right. And iMazing is, is the app that I use to, so that I'm not stuck doing this inside of iTunes. I do my backups there. It's, you know, it's just a much better experience for doing that because it's purpose built for, like you said, device management. I love that term. It's much better than, you know, syncing because there's more to do. And honestly, syncing may or may not be, it, you know, certainly isn't the biggest part of it anymore. You know, most of the syncing is happening over the cloud. So, yeah. Well, backups, yeah. Uh, you know, backups and, and things like that, which. Uh, so, yeah, I'm yeah, I'm leaning. I, I like the way you broke it out, though, is that you, you have the media aspect whether it be uh, apps or you know, I mean the, the thing is kind of the app thing kind of bleeds over into the device management thing, or at least, and, and they've kind of changed that as of late is that when you do a backup, you know, it, 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 uh, you know, brings the apps along with it. So they've kind of changed the nature of that. So, yeah. Yeah. There's so, yeah, it's just that they're, they're kind of combining these three areas of functionality and it gets, uh, and especially when they change where things are, that's the, I think my biggest fish shake with iTunes is, is but that's you know, Apple, especially right. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. And they don't do it just do it with iTunes, but right. a lot of times it's like, okay, well, you know, what happened to the sidebar that I expected that, you know, showed me where everything is. They hit it. Yeah. They decided the that's not good for was, the future. Yeah. yeah. And the solution was, oh, okay, well, you know, explicitly go to the menu and say, show the sidebar. And then everybody's like, oh, now it works the way I'm used to. <laughs> yeah. Sort of, as long as you're somewhere where the sidebar appears, right? You know, I, I, yeah, I, I, but again, I think some of this is, you know, the get off of my lawn factor, right? We, we are very used to, we grew up with 
iTunes and, you know, sound jam being used in that way. And now it's kind of a, a different thing. Do people still maintain playlists? And I mean, is that, is, is that an antiquated concept now that everything is just streamed and you just sort of go and you manage not your playlist, but your up next list. Right. I mean, I, I still manage my playlists and I really like it. You know, I've been, uh, I, when Apple music first started, I had it add, uh, I added everything they had from Frank Zappa, including all the mothers of invention stuff to a playlist. And then from that, I created a smart playlist that was everything that I had not yet listened to. And, uh, I marked everything as unlistened initially. And then I went through and uh, listened to the entire Frank Zappa catalog and I got to the end and I posted on Twitter. I'm like, oh, I made it through to the end. And people are like, wow, that's a massive, massive undertaking. I thought, yeah, it took me a couple of months. And then, uh, of course, somebody said, wait a minute, what's everything? And so I posted it and they're like, dude, that's not everything, you know? And I realized there was like more than double left. And of course, since then, Apple had added a whole bunch of other Zappa and mother stuff to uh, Apple music. So I brought it down. And again, my unplayed thing served me perfect, perfectly well because it just filled it in. And so I like using playlists and smart playlists. I have my earphone test playlist that I use when I'm out testing headphones and speakers and I don't know that kind of stuff, but I don't know if other people do it that way. I'm that, you know, the thing I just described is crazy listening to every bit of music that Frank Zappa ever released. That'll change your brain, man. I think. I think in a good way, though. You use playlists, John. I just don't know that everybody does. I like I like looking at my music that way. Anyway, uh, where are we here? So we handled Joe. You want to take us to Ronald, John? I think we will. Awesome. <clears throat> I have to say, um, it's a little... You know, I've changed the, like I said, I changed kind of a lot, in fact, about the way we're recording the show. But one of the things I changed is there's a lot less noise coming from you. And there are moments where it's like, huh, I wonder, did I lose John? No, there you are. It's just nice and quiet and like it should be. It's good. I like it. All right. So Ronald has a question, which I think is a good question because things have changed. And he writes, hey, John and Dave. My wife and I have been taking many photos since our baby was born. As expected, my wife's MacBook Pro eventually ran out of space, having a 256 gigabyte SSD. We use the Apple Photos app to manage and edit photos. I thought about transferring the photo library to an external USB drive and just plugging it in whenever we need to view or copy photos. But with a toddler running around, it doesn't seem feasible. Um, all right. Uh, what's the toddler going to do? Oh, uh, I guess run off with the drive. Okay. I don't know. Well, yeah, you're moving the computer around a lot. I mean, you know, a laptop is meant to be portable and, and having a drive tethered to it makes it less portable. In fact, when we're finished with this, I have a, I have a story to tell. I can't believe I forgot about my story, but anyway, okay. but I'm not going to interrupt. So, um, Go much. All right. Uh, to continue, I don't currently have a NAS, but I do have a spare Mac Mini in the house. I am thinking of using it as a server, but I'm not sure how to go about it with all of our photos. In particular, is it still a valid option to keep using the Photos app to manage our library? Um, and I think it is. So, the, the things have changed with photos. So, um, but fortunately, there are some articles that will uh, tell you what you need to do here. 
Um, so when you start photos, like many other Apple, uh, I'll call them media management apps. See, I'm coming up with a clever wording today. I like it. Just, uh, <laughs> um, which I would include both photos and, and music and stuff like that. But if you hold down the option key when you're launching the app, typically you'll get a dialogue asking you to choose the library that you'd like to use. And photos is no different. Um, here's the difference, though, with photos. So photos is a little different from other Apple products. And I actually found this out because I also run a transporter. Uh, for those of you that don't know, a transporter is a device that will synchronize content from your local hard drive to the transporter device, which is connected over a network. Um, but it also shows you in the app, it'll show you files that it's syncing to, to the device. And I noticed that it was syncing uh, JPEGs and, and all sorts of other things. And I'm like, what, what is it doing? You know, and I found out exactly what it's doing. Um, it's reacting to the fact that photos in the background is actually modifying the photos library because it's doing some clever stuff. Well, you, you have the option with photos to do some clever stuff. So you can certainly use photos as a standalone app to manage your photos, but it also uh, photos ties you into Apple's various cloud services. And you can see this, of course, if you run photos and you then go to, um, you know, the preferences, you, you can see some options that you may or may not want to enable. Uh, so if you click on iCloud, you'll see iCloud Photo Library, which I'm not using personally, uh, My Photo Stream, which I am using, and iCloud Photo Sharing. And as far as I can tell, if you have any of those enabled, then Photos is going to run this little background app that's going to be uh, covertly updating the library, even when you're not running Photos. And it so can chew, that one, can chew a lot of CPU power too, especially if you're on an older Mac. Um, it, it's just sort of a fact of life. But, uh, but right. So yeah. what you're going to want to do, though, because of the uh, different nature of photos, you're going to want to be sure if you. So as far as I can tell, you can move the library to an external drive. But I'll tell you one thing: you don't want to do. So the thing is, you probably, if you're going to move that library to another drive, you're also going to want to do something uh, which Apple calls designating a system photo library in photos. And they have an article that basically points you to the section of um, photos where you do this. Um, I suspect if you don't do this, then things will not work out well for you if you had any cloud services running, because then it's going to get confused as to where this should be happening. Um, Another thing I'll point out is that, so there's another article, which uh, I guess you may have pasted it already in the room there, Dave. Uh, it's called Getting Started with Photos for OS X. And they explicitly in this article say, do, do, do not <laughs> use a cloud-based service to store your photos library because it will not end well for you. Again, I suspect because they're doing this clever background stuff and sure. a lot of these cloud services typically don't deal with live or incremental updates to files very well. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because you're going to be sending it in, in lots of directions simultaneously. Yeah. So what I'm thinking here, so it seems like there is a provision for you to store it not on your local drive, but on a external drive, whether it be a NAS or 
a uh, direct connected drive. Um, the only thing I'm not sure of is how it's going to deal with the fact of the when the drive is not there. If if it's going to be smart enough to just put this synchronization, you know, cloud synchronization, if you choose it, if not, then I think you're okay. If you are using any of these cloud services though, uh, I haven't tried this. So my apologies, but um, I'm not sure how it's going to deal with the fact, uh, how it's going to deal with the situation. The drive is not there. Maybe it's just going to wait and hang out. And when it sees it come back again, then it'll say, Oh, okay. Whether you connect it via the NAS or a direct USB connection, it'll be smart enough to say, okay, now's the, the chance for me to, to synchronize. Yeah, we do. We do some of this here. Um, I keep my photos in the library. Uh, I actually have a couple of them, right? And, and one of them is on the NAS and that's actually the one that Lisa syncs with directly, right? So when she launches photos on her computer, it's opening up across the network, um, which actually works out great. It's faster on the NAS over gigabit ethernet than it is direct on her uh you know okay to her hard drive using photos using photos yep okay all right so it can deal with the fact that something is is over an ass okay oh, yeah I, I, I was pretty sure but because yeah i think we would have heard about it by now <laughs> no it, it works out great the the um if you the background stuff if the nas goes offline or her connection to the nas is is severed for any reason the background stuff just doesn't happen uh, at that point. However, if she launches photos while that connection is severed, it will default to either opening if it exists or creating a photos library in her, in the default place, which is home pictures, you know, photos library. Uh, so you've just got to be aware of that, but the chances, especially in our scenario and, and, and possibly even in, uh, in Ronald's too, is if you're, internet connection is live and you're connected to the internet you're probably also connected to your NAS on your, on your local network. Of course, with a, with a portable computer, you wind up taking it in different places. And this is where you might actually intentionally want to have two different photos libraries going simultaneously. One on your NAS that becomes sort of your, your offloading place, right? So you, you've got your, your MacBook, that you can take with you. It doesn't matter if you're home or not. And you that's your sort of place where you triage photos. You put them there. And then occasionally when you get home or while you're at home, you offload photos to this library on the NAS. Now, that's not an easy process with Apple's tools. But there is a tool from Fat Cat Software called Power Photos. You might remember Fat Cat Software is the people who made iPhoto Library Manager, or IPLM, as we called it for years here. And Power Photos is that tool for photos instead of iPhotos. So you can copy photos between libraries. You can actually merge two photo libraries if you've got things, or photos libraries, I should say, if you've got things all over the place. Um, you know, it'll find duplicate photos amongst libraries, and and you can, it, it it's got all kinds of great stuff going on there. So, definitely worth checking out if you're in this scenario. Um, and I, you know, it's one of those things that when I moved to photos, it was like, Oh, wait a minute. iPhoto library manager doesn't exist anymore. This is bad. And thankfully Brian over at, at fat cat was like, yeah, don't worry. Power photos. Here it is. So it's good. <laughs> and that's the one thing that makes me sad about the newer portables that don't make it easy for you to expand your hard drive is when you run into a case like this where you would like to have them 
uh, on your machine, but you can't because you didn't get a drive that was large enough because you didn't anticipate that you would need that much space. Well, the the other option is to pay, you know, Apple says don't use cloud storage, <gasps> but Apple has a cloud solution that will address all of these problems. And that's, um, you know, iCloud photo library, right? So if you use iCloud photo library, uh, you would need enough storage there. So you would need to buy storage from Apple, most likely uh, to fit all of your photos, but it will then intelligently manage what you have on your Mac based on the storage space that you have on your Mac. So it won't necessarily keep full copies. It might just keep thumbnails of all of your photos on your Mac. And, and then you can, when you want to see it, it pulls it down from the cloud and manages it, it dynamically. It's certainly the simplest solution here. Um, it may or may not, again, you know, the quote unquote best is, is a uh, sort of personal choice, but, um, but makes it easy. And then you can have, you know, two computers logged in and, and your wife could have an account on the Mac mini that also logs into her iCloud photo library. And you could have that one set to, you know, if it's got enough storage, pull down all the copies all you know, full, uh, full size copies of all the photos onto that one. And then you're good to go. Yeah. You're using some of your internet bandwidth to do it. I'm, I doubt that Apple's efficient enough to pass things between two computers. Uh, heaven forbid, but, uh, but, you know, that would be the other solution here. So there you go. That's my thoughts on it. It's good I, stuff, though. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that about covers it. Sweet. So, John, I, I, um, I, I said I had a, a tale to tell. I, you guys know, we talked about the TiVo Bolt, right? Um, and I liked it. And it, this was one of those reviews that I knew was going to cost me some money, and it was true. So I bought a new TiVo, TiVo Bolt. They wouldn't sell me the review unit for whatever reason. It's just, you know, paperwork. I don't know. Uh, but that meant, hmm. yeah, but it meant having to move all of my shows again, right? Because when I set up the, the Bolt for review, I uh, moved all the shows from my premiere to the Bolt so that we could really just like use it and review it properly. Uh, and that process is fine. It'll do it over the network, but you have to go to each episode that you want to move over and say, transfer this episode. It's like a real pain. Now, to be fair, you don't even have to move them over. If you've got both live on the network, you can just watch over the network from one TiVo to the other. And that's sort of the whole new TiVo paradigm anyway. So we could have done that, but I wanted to just get them all over there and, and that's fine. And certainly now uh, with this, you know, loaner unit having to go back, I don't want to keep it forever. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't want to, I want to keep it longer than, than I need to. They want it back. They, they've got other people that want to review it. And so I want to get my stuff off of it. And I was like, Oh man, now I got to go back through and like click every episode. And I thought, you know, there's gotta be an easier way. And there is. So I used two pieces of software and my laptop to do this. Uh, I plugged everything in to the same ethernet switch. So I was getting gigabit ethernet between my laptop and my, uh, two TiVo bolts, right? And and just for uh, reference, if you've got two TiVos set up, uh, cover the IR port on on one of them, and in the bolt, it's in the black TiVo logo. So we just you know put some over that, and that was fine. So now we're not controlling two TiVos, but um, over the network, you can you you can download the shows, and then you can also tell a TiVo you to request shows, so push a show to a TiVo. Uh, there's two pieces of software to do that. The one that will let you download shows from the TiVo. And there's actually several that will do this, but the one I used was called KMTTG. And the reason I used this is because it's 
very easy to automate. It's a Java software, so I had to update Java on my Mac. And I people get all wavy armed about Java. Java is awesome. Um, it, it, there are some security concerns when running Java inside a browser, but this is just running an app, so it's all good. And uh, and then it will link with another uh, piece of TiVo management software for the Mac called PyTiVo, P-Y-T-I-V-O. And again, this is Python TiVo, and it's also cross-platform and runs great. PyTiVo can do a, can do several things. One of them is it can tell a TiVo it can push something to a TiVo, which, which, as I said, is really telling the TiVo to request it from it. There's, there's a whole thing, but it essentially becomes a push. So what I was able to do is I went in KMTTG. I selected all the shows from the loner TiVo and I said, download these, but don't convert them. Just leave them in the TiVo encrypted format and then push them to the new living room TiVo. And I selected everything all at once and I hit go and it started downloading. Now I had to make, I had to connect a big monster hard drive to my laptop uh, to store all these things. Cause my laptop drive wouldn't have had enough space. Um, Cause it was about 500 gigs worth of data. And it took, you know, I don't know, three or four hours and then everything was done and everything was migrated over. And it was, you know, a one click operation. Once I got it all set up now in the end, would it have been faster for me to go through and queue up each one as opposed to setting up this whole environment? Maybe, but probably not. In fact, it was, it was a pretty, pretty painless setup so i just wanted to share that uh, that little story there's there's the there's the tools out there if you look and we'll put links of course to all of these things in uh in the show notes just so you know have you ever used either of those things john no there's different tools for me because i'm still old school on the uh <coughs> series three pytivo these two things will work with the series three yeah oh no i use i use those tools okay yeah, right. I use PyTV. Yeah, the tools that you mentioned, but um, but for cloning things from one drive to another, the tools that we use are different because uh, last I checked, the format of the drive in the uh, Series Three is somewhat proprietary. I think they use something called MFS, Multimedia File System, or something. Yeah, Whereas but that's why I did this over the network, and that that way there's no concern yeah. with the format. Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's good. Yeah, fun. So did you get the uh, the lifetime? Were you able to get lifetime uh, uh, for your bolt? I did. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got to pay uh, quite a bit sometimes, uh, though they may cut you a deal. Tivo I, did I, cut me a deal. Yeah, they did. Well, I know a lot of people. Yeah, especially if you're like, gee, you know, I I'd really like to use the Tivo moving forward, but I'd really like lifetime too. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the thing this is, was, I, think I, I paid. I paid full lifetime. price for my for my bolt. I didn't get a deal on that. Oh, but okay. The, but the PR department to help me with the, with the lifetime thing, which was actually very nice of them. I didn't even, ex- I, I didn't expect it out of them. I just asked them, can uh, I buy the one that I have? So I don't have to go through this headache that I went through yesterday. And they're like, no, but here's what we can do for you. I'm like, oh, my understanding cool. is they'd rather keep you happy as a TiVo customer moving forward. than having you abandon them. It's and, true. You uh, don't, you don't need to be a reviewer to get a deal out of TiVo from what I have been told. It's true. In fact, we wound up getting lifetime on all of our other TiVos from their support department. We reported a bug to them and they were really thankful for that. And they're like, mm-hmm. we really would like to do something for you. And they had no idea. I mean, through the process, they'd learned who I was. But at the time they were, you know, they didn't know it was. A, and it was mm-hmm. a real problem it was when the iPad app first came out. It was if you tried to use that to migrate season passes between 
your old TiVo and your new TiVo, which you can do now and it works totally great and you can do it online and it's awesome. Things were getting deleted, like season passes were getting deleted from both places and it was really, really bad. And I reported it to them. They're like, they were thankful and they said, hey, can we, you know, bump your TiVos up to lifetime? And I said, well, one of them already is, but these other two, yeah. And they're like, all right, cool. Make your next payment of your whatever thing and and that'll automatically trigger you into lifetime. I was like, that's yeah. nice. Yeah. Because I can understand, you know, a lot of other people are following this model, you know, like the uh, cell phone companies as well. Yeah. Is, uh, you know, rather than getting a big lump of cash up front, they really would much rather have recurring revenue. Yes. You know, which, which is one of their models is that you pay monthly or yearly for a subscription to get the program data, which you kind of need yep. to use the device uh, in any uh, reasonable fashion. You you can still use it without sure. subscription, but it's uh, uh, rather unpleasant, I would say. That's right. You got to manually program everything. <laughs> All right, we get, so we've got a, a few more minutes left, John. You want to take us yeah. to Terry? Terry has a good one. Terry good. has a good one. So, hey, guys, my SSD is getting over full on my 2012 Retina MacBook Pro. Yeah, see, that, that's my fish shake. Because <laughs> that's, I think, one of the first models where uh, it's not easy to replace the uh, SSD. Right, right. So he says, um, Drive Genius found a lot that I felt safe wiping out, but I'm not certain of these. I think I've heard you mention these before, maybe a year or so ago, but don't recall. The folder is Macintosh HD slash lost plus found or lost and found. But it uses a plus sign, not an and sign. Right. And the two files are inode 849945 which is 5.1 gigabytes in size. And uh, inode 112, uh-oh, ooh. inode 112580407, which is a 6.08 gigabytes. Those are big files. The first inode file, the second one, no. <laughs> Those are pretty much arbitrary numbers that it comes up with here. Um, but here's what's happening. So this is a result of OS X being Unix-based. And uh, when a Unix-based systems have a problem with files um, typically if a file operation is in progress and then something bad happens like the machine crashes or whatever uh, rather than just ditch what's happening uh, most unices right I like it I mean we'll take whatever they find we'll take you know these these kind of things that were in progress and they're like you know what I'm gonna put this in this folder called lost and found and then you figure out what to do with them. And that's exactly what happened here. Yeah. So I don't know what caused it. Now, whether you want to get rid of them or not, can he safely get rid of them? And the answer is yes and no. Well, the, the <laughs> OS isn't using them anymore. Right. Correct. I mean, it, yeah. it, you know, by, by nature of them kind of been having found and then placed over here, nothing knows they are there in terms of, active processes but it's possible one of these things could have been a file that was really right. important to you yeah so that's why i answered it in kind of a, a obscure fashion yeah yeah i'm with you yeah okay. now the thing is it's the name of the file is i what is that well that's the name that it gave it uh once it found that there was you know this 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 problem with the file system here's how you find out what type of file it is, which I think will lead you on the path to determining whether it's something that you need or not. And what you can do is you can go into, uh, you can go into our pal, the terminal, do not be afraid, uh, change over to the lost and found directory. And then if you type 
file space and then the inode file which you can probably you know hold down a key and then hit tab and it'll do auto completion um it'll tell you what type of file it is isn't that slick seriously <laughs> try it man this is new for me i like this see this is why we do this show oh really? so file is a command built into at least os 10 and it may be a just general unix thing yeah. but if you if you type the word file and then a space and then give it a file, it'll do its best. And I think it does it through a combination of a, so there were, I think there's a database of, you know, headers and, and patterns and stuff like that, that, that is also baked into this command no and it'll do its way. best to tell you what type of file it is. Like I had this problem actually one day and it told me, yeah, this is a dot PKG, which uh, in some cases is actually a, an installer. And actually I would suspect that's probably in most cases where I've heard of these inode files, they're actually old OS 10 installers. And actually looking at the size, I would say that it that's could possible. Be. Yeah, dude, I just did it. So I have, I just, this isn't going to come as a surprise. I've got a bunch of MP3 files on the desktop of, of the computer here on the, in the studio. And so I did file on, on one of them, but you know, it has the extension MP3. And of course it told me immediately, this is audio file with ID three version 2.3.0 contains yada. And it's like, Perfectly, it's a layer three version, 128 kbps, 44.1 kilohertz joint stereo. Like, wow, okay. But it had the .mp3, so it had a hint of getting there. So I copied the file to just a, you know, test with no extension, nothing. And I did the same command on this test and it told me exactly the same thing. It knew. So it can, it looks at the headers and uh, digs in, like you said, as best it can. That's, dude. So what you could do and also in the terminal, so I would say probably the easiest way. So I don't think in the terminal there's a rename command, but there's a move command, right? Where is there a rename? I, oh, uh, yeah, I, I use, yeah, move is how you rename. M- MV, actually, um, is how you, how you rename. So what you could terminal. do is once you've identified the type of file, is you could rename it. Oh, sure. With yeah. the proper extension, because even if you identify it, like in your case, even if you identify it as an MP3, if it doesn't have the extension, some programs... Uh, so what I'm saying is that once you rename it, then assuming it's something that you want to continue to use, then the programs that are used to dealing with it will be able to deal with it. Whereas if you just try to, so say for example, it's a graphics file. Uh, some programs may not be smart enough to process it. They may, may not be able to do this identification. So if you try right. to open an inode file that is actually a JPEG or a PNG or something in a graphics program, maybe be like, huh? So I think most would be smart enough, but, but I'm just, uh, yeah, if you want to, if you want to recover it. So first you look at it. Uh, so first you rename it and then, um, it may still be a mystery. So even though it's like a package file or an installer, you may still have to run it right. in order to figure out what the heck it is. If it's a, you know, like you said, you know, if it's a MP3 or something like that, then well, you listen to it <laughs> and tell if it's uh yeah. you're probably never going to recover the name of the, the original name of the file, but this will lead you to the path. Of I don't know. The MP3, recovery. if it's got ID three tags in it might have a name. Ah, good point. Right. I mean, it depends on the type of file, of course, but the, the name, yeah, you won't, you won't recover the, the original actual name of the file, but you might recover enough of something that gives you a hint as to what, might be a another good name for it yeah see folks this is why you listen through all the way to the end because sometimes sometimes that's where the golden nugget is actually there have been a lot of golden nuggets in the show but uh man how about a golden ticket i like (laughs) i want a golden (laughs) ticket 
Yeah, I like it. Ah, man, that's good stuff. Sweet. Well, and, you know, sadly, um, it is the end. I do want to point out one thing, though. When you started that, you said that um, the Retina MacBook Pros were the first models, or one of the first models, where replacing the SSD was not um, easy. It's not terrible, and I'll put a link in the notes to, you know, the the Envoy Pros from OWC. And, uh, and in fact, there there's a Mac Observer logo uh, from one of our reviews right on the page there. Uh, but. Now, Dave, you know what's interesting, though, is that the machine that I have, so the machine that I have, I would consider one of the last user upgrade, easily user-upgradable machines, yeah. and that's the MacBook Pro 2012 uh, 15-inch. And actually, I saw an article somewhere saying that a lot of people still like this machine because, you know, it's not a wimp. I mean, it's 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 still fairly powerful, but I actually determined something. So we were talking about, uh, you were talking about uh, IR remotes the other day. Yeah. This is the last macbook pro to have an ir receiver oh yeah the retina because i actually looked through mac tracker and the retina is the first machine or at least according to mac tracker that does not have an ir receiver and i think every macbook moving forward from the 2012 does not have an ir receiver in it which uh because i i found an ir remote and i was i was you know trying to control my mac and it wasn't working it was making the lights on my apple tv flash but it wasn't activating it because it wasn't paired you can, you know, marry an IR remote to a device. Right, right, right. Huh. Yeah, not yeah. that it's a big deal. I, no. I, you know, I think a lot of people don't really use the IR remote on their Mac anyways. No, but when I got my um, 2011 MacBook Air, it did not come with a remote. And I was like, oh, well, awesome. You know, I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get an Apple remote. And so I ordered one. And I was like, how come this thing doesn't work with this? Oh yeah, this laptop doesn't have an IR port, but that's okay. There's, Wait, you said 2011? Man, my 2011 MacBook Air does not have an oh, IR the, port. Yeah, I think the Air yeah. series. Yeah, none of the. I, I don't like any of the Airs. That's correct. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I just you know I'm just being stupid about it. Anyway, all right, folks. Well, feedback at macgeekgab.com is the address to which you will send your notes, your comments, your thoughts, your cool stuff found. That's been working well, alternating each week between quick tips and cool stuff found. I like it. It's a nice little pace. It's a nice little break. I feel like we can find a third thing in there and rotate them out, but, uh, you know, we're not in any rush. We'll, it'll happen organically uh, in its own little way like things do here. But uh, send it all in. We'd love, to, uh, love yep. to hear from you. But if you are in a rush, you want to write to feedback at MacGeekGab.com. No, you said feedback at MacGeekGab.com. <laughs> or premium at MacGeekGab.com. If you are a premium member, please... Take a minute, visit MacGeekGab.com, learn what our premium membership is about. If it's something that you're interested in participating in, you do get the benefit of uh, us prioritizing the notes that you send in. Plus, you get that warm, fuzzy feeling of supporting your two favorite geeks directly. We certainly appreciate it. It is a huge part. The premium memberships are a huge part of what uh, what keeps us going here, and we, we really do appreciate it. So, uh, so thank you. To, to all of you that are a part of it. And if you can't be a part of it or don't want to be, that's okay too. Uh, I just don't want you to not know about it. That's it. It's an awareness thing. That's all. 206-666-GEEK is the number that anybody can call and leave us a message. And John, geek is? 4335. That's right. Find us on Facebook. MacGeekUp.com slash Facebook is... Uh, 
the best way to, to get to our Facebook group. There's some great people in there. A lot of them actually are in the chat room today with us. Thank you to everybody who participates in that group and helps out. We get a lot of new folks in there every week. A lot, some of you are coming in with answers to questions. Some of you are coming in with questions. Everybody's taking care of each other. It really is the epitome of, of what we do here because everybody, it's just a community and we all like to help each other. We share cool stuff. We help each other with their questions. And, and I, when I say we, I mean, I, you know, you are more a part of that we even than, than, than John or I are. Uh, you guys answer these questions before I even get a chance to see them, and it's great. So thank you to everyone who participates there. Also, a great big thanks to Cashfly, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com, for providing all the bandwidth to get this show from us to you. And, of course, our podcast marketplace. We have some great sponsors, as we mentioned during the show. iMazing. Coupon code MGG saves you 20% off of this awesome device, iOS device management application. It really is outstanding, so you got to check it out. Uh, Gazelle at uh, gazelle.com to sell off your old iOS devices. Smile at smilesoftware.com slash geek is the place where you can go to see what they've got for you. Of course, Squarespace at squarespace.com slash MGG with coupon code MGG saves you 10%. OWC, we mentioned them in the show. They're a great sponsor as well, maxsales.com. Barebones Software at barebones.com. BBEdit 11.5 is out. We'll talk more about that very shortly in the uh, show here. And then, of course, Casper at casper.com. A coupon code MGG saves you 50 bucks in free shipping. John, do you have any advice to share? Hmm. I think I do. I don't know. I was trying to think of something clever, but barring anything clever, like don't take wooden nickels, that they haven't made those in ages, then I would say the only other piece of advice that we have for you is don't get caught. Made up.